myself, one little thing, Rufnov Weinberg, my Rebbe's and Tal, had always said that, uh, what does Hashem want from us? Okay, it's quite a, quite a big list. But one of the main things is Achdut. He wants us really to have to be one. And there's no question that that's one of the main things that God wants from us. And sometimes he brings all kinds of interesting events to the world in order to bring that about. And I was thinking to myself how divided America is. America is not necessarily us, but uh, when you think about Miami Beach or Florida, I don't know what percentage is Jewish, but I'm assuming that at least in Miami Beach it's probably 10%, maybe more. So anyway, I think that uh, if we look at current events, no matter how we look at it or what's going on, one of the main themes or one of the main motivations that Hashem has, and we should really try to uh, hearken and listen and uh, create uh, a, certain type, a certain type of unity because, uh, as Rubinoff Weinberg said, if, uh, if we don't bring it about, he'll make sure it happens because it's going to happen one way or the other, and it's only better when it comes from within. And without any further ado, I will pass the microphone over to the rabbi. And uh, thank you, rabbi, for coming. Please uh, turn all your cell phones on vibrator off. Thanks. <clears throat> uh, just to uh, um, make a comment on what uh, had just been said, the relationship between uh, Israel and uh, America. Uh, there is an interesting relationship. <clears throat> if you spell out the word Jerusalem, right, J-E-R-U-S-A-L-E-M, you notice that the middle of the latest is USA. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but uh, Jerusalem, the middle of the word Jerusalem is USA. Uh, and that's a very interesting uh, uh, fact. So there is a connection, right? <clears throat> In any case, uh, tonight is a, a very uh, important lecture this year because we are coming up really in many ways to the essential theme of all the holidays. Um, and that, of course, uh, one, of the, one of the, the essential theme is, of course, tshuva, repentance, which we're coming up very shortly, Yom Kippur. So I thought it would be very valuable really to get a, a good understanding of tshuva, repentance, a uh, good understanding of that. Also, to answer many questions about tshuva, uh, one of the most, I think, one of the most important is that, why is it that, you know, there's so much of a build-up before you get to Rosh Hashanah, then you get to Yom Kippur. Why is it that right after Yom Kippur, everybody goes back, basically, to being what they were before? Uh, you know, it's like one of those New Year's resolutions that don't even outlive New Year's, if you know, you know and so on. Uh, that's an interesting question. Why is tshuva so difficult to do? Uh, and I want to try to deal with that because I think it's very practical uh, to identify <clears throat> what is the problem in terms of tshuva, but why doesn't it seem to be effective? And like I said, because people just go back to doing what they do the whole year, even though they went through Yom Kippur, and they now, of course, uh, 
at least in some chuva in the day, but it doesn't seem to be really effective. So I'd like to talk about that also. And also give you certain pointers, which I think would be very helpful in terms of really doing chuva. So, uh, first, is to, uh, first thing uh, to understand is the event of Yom Kippur. Every Jewish holiday has its uh, origin in a historical event. We know that. And the historical event of Yom Kippur really started from Shavuos, when Moshe Rabbeinu went up to receive the Torah. And of course, he came down on Shavuos with Thomas. And at that point in time, uh, the Jewish people had sinned the golden calf on Shavuos with Thomas. And of course, uh, that was a terrible, terrible chet. Uh, for many reasons, but one of the most important is because it involved the entire Jewish people, except the Shevet Levi. The only leave the Levi, the whole Shevet did not sin. But everybody else uh, basically did. And there's an argument who really sinned. Was it the Arab Rav or the Jews, whatever. But in any case, the Jews clearly were held uh, guilty, culpable for the sin. Um, and, uh, and that was just a terrible event. Moshe Rabbeinu, of course, realized what that meant. That, and what he did is, of course, from Shivas Thomas, he went back up in heaven to Shemayim. And for 40 days, he pleaded with the Bonsham not to destroy Klai Yisrael. Because that's basically what the Bonsham said. leave me, and I will destroy them. Um, and Moshe Rabbeinu, of course, pleaded for Klai Yisrael for uh, 40 days. And he succeeded in uh, overturning the decree to such an extent where uh, he came down after 40 days on Rosh Chodesh and then he went up another 40 days from Rosh Chodesh to the 10th day of Tishri, which is in Kippur, to get the second Luchos, and the Rabban Shem did forgive the Jewish people, at least to the extent where he didn't destroy them, he uh, re uh, reaffirmed his commitment to them that they are the chosen people, uh, and as a result of that, of course, the clouds, the clouds of glory, the Adonia covered, returned on the 15th day of Tishrei, which of course is the beginning of Sukkot. <clears throat> Therefore, Yom Kippur has its origin in the fact that God forgave the Jewish people. And therefore that day, which is the 10th day of Tishrei, now became a, a model or a, a day in which forgiveness is now accessible to a great extent. So that's the historical event which occurred on the 10th day of Tishrei, which became Tishbah. And that day, of course, now became what's called in English propitious to forgive for atonement purposes. You know, Kippah, not Tishbah, Tishbah. It's a Tishbah. What was that? You said Tishbah. Did I say Tishbah? No, it's a Yom Kippah. Well, whatever. I'm sure we all know it's Yom Kippah. In any case, uh, so this is the start of that. <clears throat> Question is, what is unique about Tishbah? Uh, see, you're right. <laughs> what is unique about Yom Kippur? You see, well, what we see is some certain very important ideas. How much does the Rebbeinu God, how much does he really want us to do tshuva? And we would say enormous amount. And when we take a look at what he's done, we can see that in certain sense. God has incredibly overextended himself for the Jews to do tshuva. And the first concept of tshuva, of course, is Elo, where the Bansham says, 
I mentioned uh, last week in my Rosh Hashanah year that the Bershom informed the Jewish people that the entire world would be judged. And the reason why he informed them, he didn't have to, he could have, as I said last week, ju judged all mankind, every living thing, without telling anybody. But he did, because he wants Jews to influence the verdict, obviously. It's like a boss coming to a factory, where he says, listen, I'm going to make an evaluation, so I give you one month to shape up. You see, he doesn't have to, he can just go in and then evaluate the workers and give them the pink slips, whatever. But the Vonshim didn't do that. He informed the Jewish people to tell them that he's going to be assessing the entire, what's called Tikkun Klali, the entire uh, balance of holiness and Tuma, whatever, and Avera, to see where it stands. And he's hoping that we, of course, influence the verdict. So that's the first attempt at the Vonshim really to try to, to get us to Tshuva. And then, of course, Rosh Hashanah is where the Moshlam uh, judges the entire world. And for those people who did not do Tshuva or a real Tshuva, he gave us Sarasimei Tshuva. Now, Sarasimei Tshuva is equivalent to an appeals court. In other words, the day of judgment passed, right? And uh, let's assume a person didn't do Tshuva. So Bansham says, I'll give you another 10 days after the judgment. Because some people wake up too late. You know, they don't wake up until the judgment is passed, until the awesome day is passed. And therefore, the Bansham gave another 10 days uh, to do tshuva. So that's a second attempt of trying to get Jews to do tshuva. <clears throat> a third attempt is really Yom Kippur. Why? The prosecuting attorney in heaven is the sovereign. He is there to prosecute uh, the Jews, and actually uh, everybody in that sense, but certainly the Jews. And the problem that we have is that <clears throat> when the prosecuting attorney is employed, then tshuva is very difficult. Why? <clears throat> if a person doesn't do an adequate tshuva, if he certainly doesn't do any tshuva or repentance, right? Or he doesn't do an adequate. Or he just says, well, I'll think about doing it. And so on. So when the sultan is performing his task, which is to prosecute, then he will obviously condemn that type of tshuva. He will say, come on, this isn't a tshuva. This person not doing tshuva. You call this tshuva? He clearly will denigrate the entire attempt of a person if it's not really perfect. So what the Vanshan did is an incredible thing. He dismissed the sultan for one day. Now, the sultan has three jobs. His first job is to tempt man to sin. In that role, he's called the Yetzirah. The second job is to prosecute if the man sins. And the third job, and in that role it's called a sultan, which means to prosecute, adversary. And the third job is called this, the Malchamovitz, the angel of death. It doesn't mean he kills, but he does execute the judgment that was determined by the court. Three jobs for that Malach. <clears throat> what the Vajam did is an astounding thing. He told the sultan, you can work 364 days as a prosecuting attorney, <clears throat> However, one day you cannot work. You cannot prosecute. Which day is that? Yom Kippur. Which is a remarkable thing. In other words, as a Yetzirah tempter, you can still work. As a Malachim you can still do it. But you cannot prosecute the Jews in court, in the heavenly tribunal. You see, what does that mean for us? What that means is an incredible thing. What it means is, therefore, that 
any tshuva that is done, anything, even a thought about tshuva is accepted because there is no adversary, there is no prosecuting attorney that wants to denigrate or dismiss that tshuva. And for us, it's an incredible opportunity, you see. And just to think about doing tshuva is a tremendous thing, you see. And that's important to know. Even if a person didn't do a tshuva shleimo, a real true repentance, uh, just to say, well, I think what I'm doing is nearly not right, and I really I think I should evaluate what I do and maybe change my behavior. Uh, that is a tshuva in potential. And that is considered in heaven as tshuva, not as a full tshuva, but it's not thrown out of court. You see, if he was working on that day, that would be thrown out of court. However, on Yom Kippur, every kind of thought of regret and a desire to change is immediately accepted for whatever it's worth, but it is accepted. It's a very important idea to think about. That's what I, I, I always say, you know, any person that doesn't have some aspect of tshuva, what's called a hero tshuva, something, some form of regret for what he's done, wasted his time, or whatever he's done the whole year, right? Whatever sins or uh, that he's done over the year, it's foolish not to do any type of tshuva. Because on that day, right, any type of tshuva, tshuva will be accepted for whatever it is and will not be rejected. So you got to think about that. Do something. Don't walk away from that day with nothing in terms of tshuva. You really have wasted an unbelievable opportunity. Very important idea. And that's why the gematria of Hasatan is 364. Because for 364, he is called Hasatan, the Satan, you know, the prosecuting attorney. On the one day, which is the 365th day, he doesn't work. It's called a compelled vacation. That's what it's called. But that's a very important concept. Concept. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> we know, the, the question really is, what exactly is Shufa, really? And I'll tell you. What Shufa really is, as we will see, is part of the Tikkun device. What does that mean? What's the concept of Tikkun? God created the world where he concealed his presence. So the definition of Olam Hazer, this world, is a world in which his presence is concealed, which doesn't exist anywhere else, just the physical world. In heaven, all the heavens, there are many dimensions of heaven, he is revealed in an awesome way. So the angels, the Malachim, and all those residents of the upper worlds, completely experience God. There's no such thing as concealment. No such thing. Here, right, he's completely concealed. And he has left it up for man, mankind, to try to do what? To bring him back. So he created the world with a chesar, a deficiency, and the job is of mankind, originally and now the Jews, is to bring God back into the world. That's called tikkun. Tikkun is what? It means to restore or to repair rectify, to correct. That's what Tikkun is. And the job of the Jew is to correct the existential state of the Bria, of the universe, to bring him back where he was absented from. That's Tikkun. In many ways, the Jewish people are repairmen. You see it. Uh, a car mechanic repairs cars. 
a doctor repairs bodies, electrician repairs circuitry and so on, a Jew repairs existence. That's what he does. He brings God back into the Bria. And that will happen in the Messianic era. In fact, that's what the Messianic era really is all about. Um, now, therefore, how do you bring him back? What's the instrumentation that he uses, that we as Jews can use? The first is called mitzvahs, commandments. If we do mitzvahs, we bring him back. The second is called chufa, repentance. Because God knew that people will not bring, will not do mitzvahs sufficiently. So therefore, he gave chufa, repentance, as a second device. <clears throat> the third device is called the suing or suffering. <coughs> suffering is not a punishment per se. What it really is is a rehabilitative device to bring God back. That's really what it is. We, you know, in the, in the non-Jewish world, they look at it as you know, well, it's punishment. You know, it's uh, it's all retribution. No, suing in Jewish hashkafa is the concept of rehabilitation, and you see that. Because God said, Ani Hashem I am God your healer. After the Jews got out of Egypt, God says, I am, I am uh, Ani Hashem Refech, I am uh, your God, the healer. What that means is that God is not only a judge, but he also rehabilitates, which means that he will get you ready for the future world, even if it takes suffering. And unfortunately, you know, some people have to go through a lot of it, you know, and so on, you know. But, Yisurin in Judaism is all about correcting or undoing that which a person did, which was wrong. That's really what it's about. Now, what's the common denominator of all this? Why do these three devices work? Well, the first device I said was mitzvahs. What is the operating principle of a mitzvah? And it doesn't make a difference what it is. The operating principle of a mitzvah is that it forces you, okay, to testify to a statement. What is a statement? For instance, let's assume a person, I think I used this example, a person is walking in Manhattan and he's very hungry and he smells food. But it happens to be trafe, not kosher. So he is now confronted with three different stages. The first thing is a, is a conflict of act. Well, will I go into the restaurant and eat? Or I will, I will eat, that's a conflict. Will I go into the restaurant and eat? Or I will not go into the restaurant to eat? That's a battle. That's a conflict. Should I or should I not eat in that restaurant? But what really ultimately is a battle of will. Should I go into the restaurant and eat non-kosher food because my will also exists independent of God? I have a will, so therefore that's what I want to do. Or maybe it's the reverse. I will not go in. Right? Because his will is the only will that really exists. So in the end, it becomes a battle of wills. But in the end, it's something even more profound. Will I go into the restaurant because I want to exercise my will, right? Because I also exist besides God. That's called Yeshua and Mervadoi. Besides God, there is somebody else called me. Or, no, I won't go into the restaurant, you see. I won't do that act because his will is the only will that really exists, supreme. Okay, why? Because besides God, there is nothing else. So ultimately, every mitzvah challenges you. What do you believe? Do you believe you exist independent of God? 
and therefore you can do your will? Or do you believe that God is the only thing that exists, and therefore only His will really exists, you see? And therefore, you need to conform to His will. That's what a mitzvah does. It creates a challenge for you. But ultimately speaking, if you don't go to the restaurant and so on, okay, what you've ultimately done is you've testified that besides God, there is nobody else. You see? So therefore, measure for measure. To the extent that you do mitzvahs, to the extent that you testify to that extent, you will experience you will experience God. You see? It's a measure for measure. It's an exact balance. That's why God made the instrument to bring him back the very experience that you will have as a result. To the extent that you, uh, that you sought spirituality to do the will of God, to that extent that you testify that you believe that God is the only thing that exists, to that extent you will experience God directly as a uh, measure for measure kind of thing. Now, that's what? That's mitzvahs. What about tshuva? Well, what happens if you sin? So what have you done? Within the context of what a mitzvah is, you have said, Besides God, there's me. I also exist, and I'm entitled to my own will, you see. And you've testified to that by doing the act which is contrary to what God wants. When you do tshuva, when you repent, what are you really doing? You are retracting your testimony, aren't you? You are saying, I'm sorry, I regret what I did, and I now say a different type of testimony. You see, and that's what tshuva is. The way tshuva works is the same way mitzvah does. It's a testimony of Enoid Mavadoy. Except by a mitzvah is clear testimony. By tshuva, it's a retraction of the testimony. You see? And that's what that's how tshuva works in the same way a mitzvah does. You see. So that's how the, what's called the operating principle of tshuva. So, so tshuva, repentance, is a way to retract the testimony. And God said, I accept your retraction of testimony. That's a really a gift. Because God not only accepts it, but he completely erases the entire effect of a sin as if it doesn't exist. This is interesting. Okay, what about Yisurim? How does Yisurim work? Why should suffering, right, expiate, or rather, why does it, well, expiate, why does it get you into the future world, which it does? How does it work? What's its mechanism? And the answer is the same idea. How? <clears throat> what is the battle of man? What's his problem? The battle of man always was, is, and always will be, until Mashiach comes, is, who's the boss? Who is the boss, really? Is it me or God? By automation, you see that conflict. Man had to make a choice. You see, who's the boss? Can I eat from that tree that he said don't eat from? And what that meant is that, hey, I exist also. Why can't I do what I want? I want to eat from that tree. Or no, man, so therefore I'm the boss also. Or God is the boss and therefore his will dominates and therefore I should not eat. Notice, every single thing we do, in many ways, is that conflict. Who is the boss, you see? Just like the mitzvah. 
and retraction on the tshuva, that's what man is always conflicted about. Mibarosh, who's at the front. Now, where does Yisurim come in? Here's what Yisurim does. Suffering is a very interesting form. How? Imagine a guy's worth $100 million, okay? And he just had a heart attack. And they put him in the CCU, right? ICU, CCU, right? <laughs> He's in there, right? And you walk in there, and this guy's plugged into every conceivable plug and machine, right? In order for him to survive. Okay, now this guy's worth, let's say, $100 million. Uh, most people worth a lot of money are very arrogant because they tend to believe that the reason why they made the money is because they are brilliant people. They are somebody. And that's why they made the money. Okay. Now you go over this guy, and this guy's plugged into every device, okay, and he's very sick, obviously, you know. And you look at him, and you say, it's interesting, I know this guy before the heart attack. Before the heart attack, you couldn't even make an appointment with him, you know. After the heart attack, he's crushed. You ever see these guys in the ICU? You know, they're crushed. Wait a minute, what happened to their ego? You see, the ego is crushed, why? And because if you think he's such a hot shot, just get off the bed and go home. But he can't. So therefore, what suffering does is it teaches a person an incredible lesson. You are not what you think you are. You see, if you really were somebody, you'd get off the bed and go home. But you can't. You see, you are not what you think you are. What it does is it removes one part of the conflict that I am somebody. It removes that. You see? Now, it's true, it doesn't bring the other part of the conflict. If I'm not the boss, then God is the boss. <clears throat> it doesn't necessarily do that. But what it does do is negate your illusion of omnipotence. That's what it does. It removes that illusion, or I should say, the delusion that you are what, you see? And that's half the battle won. That's why. Anything that deals with that delusion automatically does tikkun. Because the essence of Tikkun is to bring God back to declare His supremacy, that He's a supreme being. What Yisurin does is it declares that you're nobody. If you're somebody, get off the bed. You see? So a person automatically, when a person really suffers, they realize that they're nothing. That the control of life is completely out of its hands. Just ask the people in Florida what they think about stopping Irma. Obviously. So a man begins to realize, who am I really, you know? You know, it's always interesting, you know, a guy wakes up in the morning and he's going to make this incredible real estate deal. He's going to make a million dollars by the deal. He's got this meeting set up for 12 o'clock, right? Uh, to make this incredible deal and he's going to have an incredible life, right? Gets up, whatever. By 10 o'clock, has a massive heart attack and he's dead. He didn't know he's going to have a heart attack. Well, nobody knows when they're going to have a heart attack, if they have a heart attack. Nobody knows the moment of their death. But it just shows you how little, how much almost no control you have of anything in your life, you see. And that's what Yisurin does. Any form of suffering teaches you a valuable lesson. You have no control over anything, you see. Thank God you're alive. And that's why Yisurin by knocking out or crushing the ego and knocking out your delusion you're somebody, at least half the battle is won. Okay, hopefully you're gonna learn that 
God is everything. Fine. You see, that's why I'll give you a valuable tip. Okay? If somebody is suffering and he says to himself, the reason why I'm suffering is to tell me who I really am and I recognize that this suffering, suffering is from God, okay? Half the suffering will go away just from that statement. Because the whole point of it is to teach you a lesson. So if you have the lesson, and you're also the fact that God is supreme, He's everything, then the Swarm say that half the suffering will be removed. Okay? I tried it, and it works. Anyway. Uh, okay. Now, where's the, where's the proof of this? Well, because Shema Israel. When we say, here Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? Okay. Echod means He's one. Means it's not two, you and Him. It's one, just Him, right? doesn't say, here Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is two, me and Him, right? It says one, which means not you, right? And the beginning of Shema is an ayin. The large letter of Shema is ayin. And the large letter of Echod is a dalit. So that spells aid. There you are, testify. You need to testify that God is one. And if you do that, then reverse the letter. <coughs> you have Dalit, the large letter of Echot, and the large letter of Shema's Ayin is Da. You will know that. See, that's the Mida Kenegan Mida, which is really very, very interesting. Okay, you now understand how all three mechanisms do the Tikkun. Because they're all connected to the statement or the testimony of Enid Muvatu. You see? And that's the reward. When you experience God, you experience His Amen Babatu. Interesting. Therefore, what you realize is what should our attitude be towards suffering? Well, this is illustrated very interestingly with a story about Napoleon. I will tell you a story about Napoleon. And it illustrates really the concept of suffering. Napoleon was once conducting a war against some other nation. I mean, he was always conducting wars. That's what he's all about. Um, but he, he was conducting a war, and he decided, you know, I, I don't know what their plans are, what their strategy is. I need to find out their strategy. So, you know what he's going to do? So he had this incredible idea. He's going to dress up in the clothing of the enemy, and he's going to take one of his generals with him, and they are going to go Cross the lines into the enemy territory, right? And where do you find out about what the, uh, the that's the strategy of that side? He's going to go into a bar. Now, when soldiers go into a bar, what do they do? They drink, right? The more they drink, the more they talk, right? And they're going to spill it. What? Well, yeah, we're going to get this guy. You know, we're going to surround him this way and that way. So you think is that's a great strategy? I'll wait the the thing with the technique. So he goes with his general into this bar, which is in the enemy territory. The place is loaded with soldiers. Yeah, from the front, you know, because the, they, they all need the booze. They get, the, you know, uh, warmed up and so on. So they go in and Napoleon goes with the general into that. I mean, it's like going into the, into the lion's den. Uh, so Napoleon goes to the side because, you know, he doesn't want to get in the middle of the bar. So he goes to a table, him and the general, and they sit there and they try to overhear what all these guys are saying. And they're overhearing it. Well, one guy's bragging, yeah, we're gonna get this the guy Napoleon, we're gonna surround him this way and divert and diversions and all that. Fine. 
of a sudden there's a guy sitting at the bar who's drunk. And he's looking around the room, and all of a sudden he sees Napoleon and this general. So he says, wait a minute guys, hey, that's Napoleon. And the guy begins to say, yeah, crazy. Napoleon, he's gonna come into an enemy territory? You out of your mind? So the guy stands up, he's drunk. He said, no, 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 I'm telling you, that's Napoleon. So he said, how do you know if it's Napoleon, right? I said, because I was once, I take, I was once captured by him as a prisoner, right? And I saw him reviewing the guards, and I saw who Napoleon was, except I was in prison. I was able to look through the bars, right? The bars of the prison. And I saw Napoleon reviewing the soldiers, you know? But I'm telling you guys, that's Napoleon. All of a sudden, there must be like a hundred soldiers in there. They're all armed, right? They all take a look at this guy. They begin to look at Napoleon and the, and the guard. I mean, he's finished. It's over with, right? Because even on a suspicion, they're going to grab him, right? And take him to the, uh, the commander, whatever. He's over with. Everybody's in, so Napoleon and, and the general, like they're in shock. They realize they are about one minute away from death. All of a sudden, the soldier, the general that was with Napoleon, right, uh, gets up and he grabs Napoleon by the shirt, collar, whatever, right, and he takes his right fist and he puts it right in his face, Napoleon's face, you see, and he starts beating him up. He says, what? You're not going to give me back the money you owe me? And he starts beating Napoleon to a pulp. He really gave him a whipping, right? So all of a sudden, the soldiers look and say, come on, this can't be Napoleon. You think Napoleon would stand this kind of beating? So of course, they turn away, and Napoleon and the general slink out of the place, obviously, as quick as they can. And they cross the lines. It's a true story, by the way. It's not made up for this year. It's a true story, you know. Uh, they slink on the lines, they go back into his, you know, uh, Napoleon's army, and, and Napoleon, he, like, he, he's, like, he's all bloody. And he's just beaten, you know. I mean, the general did a great job, you know. Uh, he goes back to his, you know, administration, you know, his uh, whatever, you know, his, uh, back to his uh, headquarters. Uh, but a couple of hours later, there's a knock. And the general says to himself, I'm finished. I just beat up Napoleon, right? I just beat the guy up. He's, a, he's the emperor of France. I just beat him up. Right? So all of a sudden, a couple, two, three hours later, knock on the door of the general's home, you know, wherever, right? And there's a whole bunch of guard soldiers, 40 soldiers. Napoleon wants to see you, you know? And he figured, it, it's, it's, it's over with, right? So he goes to, you know, bring him to headquarters, and he's standing in front of Napoleon, and he's like, he's finished. Uh, because he beat up, the, I mean, beat up the Emperor France. You know, so Napoleon says to him, before I pronounce sentence, because you really beat me bad, what, were you think, what do you think I was thinking about when you were beating me up? So the guy, so the general says to him, you know what you think about? You probably were saying, if I ever get out of this, I'm going to get you back. Right? Obviously, you know. So Napoleon said to him, no, I wasn't thinking that. Because I understand your rules. What you were doing, obviously, is by beating me up, you were hoping that the enemy, right, 
they will leave me alone. Because they'll say nobody would ever believe that Napoleon will allow himself to be subjected to this. So I thought in my mind, hit me harder. Because you need to convince the guards, right, the soldiers, that I'm not Napoleon. So I said to myself, don't stop. Beat me. Because if you beat me, I can see you, then, then my life is saved. If you can't convince the guards of what you're doing, I'm finished. I, you know, so I want to tell you, Napoleon's telling that is the general, you know, that not only I'm not going to punish you, on the contrary, I will reward you, and so on. You see, that's the concept of Yisrael, you know. If we knew the kapora and the, the, the what's called the tikkun that Yisrael did for a person, you know, then a person would, uh, you know, I hate to say, he would say, God beat me harder, you know. Uh, but that's the type, it's Yisrael as a tikkun device that saves the person. You see. So therefore, <clears throat> we have three different types of tikkun devices. Now, <clears throat> what is tshuva really? And here's the mistake. There's a question that you must ask yourself. I don't understand something. <clears throat> There's a mitzvah to do tshuva every day of the year, isn't there? It's a mitzvah to do tshuva. The Rambam counts tshuva as a mitzvah satsay. Doesn't say anything about Yom Kippur. There's a mitzvah to do tshuva every day of the year. So then why is Yom Kippur special? Now, I mentioned the fact that the sun is not there. But what's the difference in your tshuva between Yom Kippur and every day of the year? And the answer is a misinterpretation of the word tshuva. Tshuva does not mean to repent. It means to return. Return what? Uh, the problem is this. When a person sins, it's not just the sin that he does, you see. What he does is he creates, a, his relationship with God is damaged. That's the problem. Yeah, you did the sin, fine. Uh, but by doing the sin, your relationship with God is damaged. There's now a rechok. There's a distance that you have created between you and God. That's the problem. It's not just the immediate sin. It is the ultimate relationship that you have with God that is damaged. Therefore, what tshuva is, repent, is not just to repent on the sin. It's to repent your entire way of how you behave with God. You see, that's why the word tshuva means to return, not to repent. You see, that's the difference between Yom Kippur and all other days of the year, which is a very important idea. <clears throat> Every day of the year, you repent for sins, you see. But on Yom Kippur, your repentance is much greater than a sin. It has to be where you decide, I want again get close to God. I want to become spiritual. In other words, I want to return to God by, by not sinning at all. Not just, I, forgive me for doing this sin. But in other words, I want to return from the state of sinning altogether, you see. And that's really what Yom Kippur is about. Which means that it's a whole different understanding. You need to examine, really, your relationship with God. Forget about the sins for a minute. What's your relationship with God? Are you near Him? Are you close to Him? You see, that's the real idea of the true Yom Kippur. So therefore, the thoughts and the actions that you do in Yom Kippur are really are about creating, developing, and improving your relationship with God. Of course, that's done by doing the mitzvahs. 
You see. And of course, the, the rechuk, the distancing from you and God, happened because of the sin. That's true. So we do, we have our chayt. Of course. Right? Because that's what does it. But in the end, the emphasis is not on the al It's on where do you stand between you and God? That is the question. It's, you see, what does it mean to be close to God? It means to think about spirituality. That's what it means. You see, it's called the NG ratio. NG. No good. What is the NG ratio? You have to ask yourself, your activities, what is the emphasis of your activities? Is it the end or the neshama? Is it the neshama drives that you're doing, which gets closer to God? Or the G, the guf? That's the Hebrew and English. The, the guf relationship. In other words, what is your primary time activities? Is it serving the body or is it serving the spirit? Which is more? What's the ratio? Well, it's, it's 80% goof, right? Body. And it's 20% uh, God. No good. You have to reverse the ratio. Oh, you see, what is your primary activities, your primary concern? Is it God or is it yourself? That's what Yom Kippur demands. It has to be a change between how you think of yourself and God <clears throat> and how you think in terms of yourself. How does that work? Where do you see that? There used to be in Yushalayim, actually, a Rebbe called the Zvila Rebbe. He was a Balmoifus. He was a miracle worker. And now people go to his son, Gedalia Moshe. Over here he's buried right next to the, uh, near the uh, Supreme Court. Strange place to be buried. But anyway, that's where he's buried. People go because he's known as a Balmoifus. There's a whole situation on how to go to pray them and so on, without getting into that. His father was this Vila Rebbe. <clears throat> he was, and his, his father was a miracle worker. He, there's once an incredible story about, about him, who he was and so on. <clears throat> Where he was in Russia, and uh, somebody, um, somebody went into, to, uh, a guy went into somebody's house, somebody's house to, to steal, you know? And the Jew came out and he saw the guy in his house and for whatever reason the guy just dropped dead right in his house. Now, the last thing you want is a guy in your house with death. Right? That's the last thing. Not only because then you have to worry about funeral expenses, but worse, it, it starts a pogrom. Because then they say that, hey, you killed a guy, and God forbid it's not a whole pogrom. So this person ran to his Vila Rebbe. You see, he ran to his Vila Rebbe. And I think it was Friday. He ran to his Vila Rebbe. And he said, what should I do? Is a dead guy in my house. I don't know what to do. It's going to start all pogrom, you know? So the Vila Rebbe, which is a, it's an incredible story, he said, don't worry. I'm cooking chong for Shabbos. Take from my chong and put it to the mouth of the guy. It's, it's a, a true story. Uh, so the guy did that. He gave him his chong. Talk about chong, you know? He gave him his chong, and the guy took the chong, went back to his house, and put some of the chong in the guy, the guy's mouth. The guy got up. He was dead. He, he got up, you see. He walked outside, and then he just died outside. So this wasn't the guy's house, you know. Word got out what this Vila Rebbe just did. I mean, this is like beyond belief, right? So he ran away. 
he ran away from Russia because then you, you, you imagine what kind of advertisement that is, right? And uh, it also tells you how powerful Chalmers is. But anyway, <laughs> you know, I think I think I think doctors should be put to giving out Chalmers in the hospitals you know, to revive the patients. But anyway, he ran Terrence's film, and uh, people who were born there told that so nobody knew he was. He was a very quiet guy. Finally, somebody who happened from Russia came in. He said. You know this guy is sitting in the back of the room there? Napoleon. Napoleon. <laughs> this is You know, and then he became known and, and, and that was the whole thing. Anyway, uh, the story is about him, which is what I want to bring out. He used to work. This Rebbe was a Rebbe, obviously a great Rebbe, but he also used to work. It's interesting that a Rebbe works, but he used to work. In any case, um, so he once had a chassid and the chassid came over him. He said, you know, Rebbe, I don't understand something. What's the problem? So the, the chassid said, why am I the chassid? Why are you the Rebbe? You see, you say Kiddush, I also say Kiddush, right? right? You work, I work. How come you're the Rebbe and I'm the chassid? Rather brazen thing to ask the Rebbe, but he did, right? Why are you the Rebbe? Why am I the chassid? Because we do basically the same things. So the Zvi Rebbe looked at him, right? And, well, as they say in English, without batting an eyelash, he said, I'll tell you the difference. Okay. <clears throat> when I'm at work, I'm thinking of Kiddush. When you're saying Kiddush, you're thinking of work. <laughs> That's brilliant. But there's a profound concept in that. And what the Zvi Rebbe said is, is that it doesn't make a difference where you are. It's where's your mindset? Where are you? Where's your mind? Where do you want to be? That's really where you are. Your machshava is where you really are, not where you're located physically. And that's what he said. When I'm saying kiddush, okay, I'm saying kiddush, or rather, when I'm in the store, whatever he had, right? I'm thinking of kiddush. What does that mean? <coughs> it means <coughs> I want to sanctify the name of God. That's my only concern. Okay, it's true I'm working, but my mind is on God. And that's what I want. And work is an interference in my mindset of God. When you're saying Kiddush, you're thinking of work. Did I make enough money this week? Right? You know? How do I do my advertising? Yeah, I think of Kiddush. So therefore, even in the middle of Kiddush, right, you're thinking of work. And therefore, work, right, is an interference, or rather Kiddush is an interference in your work. The reverse, you see. <clears throat> it's a very profound understanding. What it says is that no matter where you are, I don't care, you go to work, you have to make a living, or whatever you're doing. If your focus, if your desire, if your rutzen, your drive, is to think about God, to be close to Him, right, to do the mitzvahs, to want to learn Torah and so on, then that's where you are. You are a Rebbe. However, if you're at, in Kiddush, and you're thinking about, you know, well, let's see, how much money did I make this week and so on, then you're a chosen. That's the difference. It's not where you are, it's what you think about. It's what your priorities are in life, what your emphasis. That's the difference between a rebbe and, and, uh, and, and a chosen. Profound concept. What does that tell us? <clears throat> tells us a lot of ideas. That tshuva, like I said, Truth is a mindset.
that you want to be more spiritual. Because that's really the difference between Yom Kippur and the regular day. You see, what you need to think about is what is your relationship with God? It's not only what averis that I commit. Where are you? You see, are you close to God? Are you far away from God? In your daily activities, do you think about God at all? Does any day pass that you, when you, if you, if you ask yourself in a given day, did I think about God once this day? That tells you something about where your emphasis is, you know, where you really want to be. <clears throat> the question is, okay, I understand. I'd like to get closer to God. How do you do this? Well, to do this requires certain activities that you have to do, and it requires certain activities that you have to refrain from not do. <clears throat> the first thing is you have to adapt a different attitude. You need to search for the truth. Most people walk around in life in a fog. They never really know what's going on. Uh, they just want to know in their world what they can get. Power, pleasure, you know, um, and so on. That's what they want. But they never search for the truth. You need to become a person that is interested in the MS. What is the truth? You see, what is life really? Who am I? You see, where is God? Who are the Jews? There's a whole world out there that is of truth. You need to want to search for that. That's the first prerequisite to a real tshuva. I'm not talking about the tshuva that people do in Yom Kippur and then right by Marv, it's already it's the quickest Marv in the world. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's astounding how quick the Marv is after Yom Kippur. You know, sometimes it's better on a weekday than on Yom Kippur by Marv, you know. Searching for the truth is a critical prerequisite to do tshuva, because it really entails an evaluation. The second thing, after you've searched for the truth, you have to be willing to change. Because if you're not willing to change, who cares if you see the truth? You need to be able to make a commitment to change. Without a commitment, forget about the tshuva. It won't happen. I'm answering the question now, why is it so many people on Yom Kippur, you know, you fast, right? And the whole concept of fasting, why do we fast on Yom Kippur? You know, what is it, a diet kind of strategy? No. What it is, is that when you fast, you're not focused on the physical, because you're not eating. Uh, so God is hoping that you're going to focus on Him and Tshuva. That's why we fast, you see. In any case, you need to commit to change. That's one of the reasons why Tshuva doesn't work for most people. Because, first of all, people, even if they know the truth, they're not willing to change. They're not willing to commit to a change. And what is that change? Simple. The change is to adapt your life in the direction of God consciousness. It's really what it is. You want to think about God, you want to do what He wants, and therefore you get closer. And really that's the whole concept of Oilam Hapa and so on, you know. Therefore, you need to want to find the truth. You have to stop fooling yourself. And one of the, and one of the worst places to look for the truth is what's called society. Most people are delusional. They have no concept of what reality is, you see. If you walk into a given room, and there are 50 people in that room, and you ask each person, what do you think is the MS, the truth? What is the real belief system? You will get 50 different answers, you see. 
And the question is why? Because most people never really search for the truth, although they have the capacity to do that. This is their problem. And also, even if they know the truth, they don't want to change. You know what I'm saying? You ever hear a guy tell you, hey, you're arguing with me, stop, you know, hey, uh, don't confuse me. Don't bother me with the facts. What's that supposed to mean? It means I don't care what the truth is. I don't want to change. That's what it means. And most people don't want to change, for whatever reason, you see. So without a commitment to change, of course you're not going to change. Dude. I don't care what you say in Yom Kippur for Juva. You're not going to change because you don't really want to change. Look, I'm being very blunt, very honest. If a person wants to do Juva, this is what's required. Let's not kid ourselves, right? That's, so therefore, uh, that's critical. And the change is to think about God, to allow Him to enter into your life. You know, they once asked the Kotzka, or rather the Kotzka asked, he's very sharp with his statements, you know, the Kotzka once asked, he says, where is God? Right? Where is He? And the answer is, wherever you let Him in. That's where He is. He's not, where, he's not out there, you gotta go find the, uh, the Rabbani Shalom. No, he's out there, he's dying to get in. We block his entry. It's us that blocks his entry, not him. It's a very important idea, whatever you let him in. And that's really, in many ways, what he's waiting for. <clears throat> now, tshuva requires three steps. Vidui, right? Confession, why? Because you need to admit that you sinned. If you don't admit you sinned, why are you doing tshuva? So Vido is critical. It's an acknowledgement and a recognition that I did a sin. Very important. The second step of tshuva is regret. Karoto. You have to regret what you did. If you don't regret, guess what? You're going to do it again. Obviously. If you don't regret what you did, of course you can do it again. And the third thing, once you regret, obviously and hopefully, is that you won't do it again. You will accept upon yourself <clears throat> to change. So therefore, uh, these three ideas are critical for tshuva. And to do tshuva, you need to do these three. You have achet, vidoy, then you have to regret what you did, really feel sorry. And the third idea is, of course, to accept uh, upon not to do it again. <clears throat> of these three, which is the greatest? It's interesting. Is the vidoy the greatest, the admission? Is it the regret? Or is it the acceptance not to repeat the avera? So it's interesting, the Chofetz Chaim says, the greatest of, the, 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 of these three steps, the most important step, which is interesting, is the regret. Yeah. Because that's what will move you. You can admit that you did a sin, okay. You know, I can go on with life. You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> to accept what you did, not to do it again, Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you won't be successful. But the regret is the, the, regret is the true uh, 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 principle, is the true concept that you really feel better about what you did. That's the, that's the essence of tshuva. It's charata. More, more so than the other two. And Chavetz Chaim says this, that charata, regret, is the greatest thing of all. It's all. Uh, you know, it's interesting, when a person sins, you may think he sins against, uh, he, there's only one sin, but really, when you sin, you really do doing three, three sins. Every sin a person does is really three sins. One, the first sin is that you rebelled against God, the king. He said no, and you said yes. 
That's called rebellion. That's right. That's called rebellion. That's the first sin against God. Uh, is, the, is the fact that you rebel. The second thing is that when you sin, you create a defect in yourself, which I will get into. You defect yourself. In some manner, something happens to you that is uh, damaging. So that's the second sin, that you've, the second consequence, that you've damaged some aspect of yourself. And the third aspect is you cause God pain, because then he has to punish you. He doesn't want to punish you. So you're causing God pain. So that's, again, a consequence of what you did, you see. So a sin really entails or encompasses all of these three ideas, you see. In any case, <clears throat> the question you have to ask yourself <clears throat> is, what do I do? Why is it so difficult to do tshuva? Like I mentioned certain ideas. Because you don't have the truth. It's a big equal. The second thing is, you don't want to change, you see. How do we really work tshuva? How do we do something that really does tshuva? <clears throat> There's a thing in psychology called cognitive dissonance. If you have a certain belief, you see, and somebody comes over to you with another belief, you will reject it out of hand. Why? Because it's dissonant. What he proposes to you is different than what you believe. So therefore, you'll just dismiss it. So then what are you supposed to do? You need to align your belief with what he says. It's a very important concept. One of the main reasons why people do not do tshuva, even though they daven and they say they will, and so on, is because in order to a real tshuva, you must change your goal in life. Yeah, believe it or not, everybody has a goal in life. Most of the time, that goal is unconscious. We don't even remember what our goals were. But we all have a, we all believe in something that we like to see ourselves ultimately. You see. And therefore, if your goal in life is to be successful physically, money, right, recognition, <coughs> and power, fame, and all that kind of stuff, and then all of a sudden you're supposed to sit down on Yom Kippur reading a siddha, you know, that God is the king, and you have to listen to what he says, Right? You have to love your God and fear God. Right? Excuse me. That's not my goal. I'm not interested in that. You see? So why? That's called cognitive dissonance. What it says in the sitter is dissonance. It's contrary to what you really believe is your goal. Or you, what you really believe is your values. So of course you're not going to change. Because unconsciously you are working against tshuva. Unconsciously. Because you already have a goal that you've established years before. And it, it is so much assumed that you don't even think about that, really. You see? So if you're not in contact with what you really want to do with your life, and if it's contrary to tshuva, you will not do tshuva. I don't care how many times you say achet, right? Or how many times you daven and so on and so forth. Because the goal that you've set, which is now by now unconscious, is contrary, opposite, in opposition to the goal of what Yom Kippur is all about. Therefore, you must re-examine your goal. You must re-examine your values. What is my real value? What's a value? A value is anything which you hold to be important, right? That's a value. Something is valueless means it's unimportant. Each one of us walks around, you see, 
with a belief of certain ideas. The first belief we have is what's called, or the, actually it's an assumption. We believe we understand reality, number one. We really do, you know. Even though everybody in this room has a complete different interpretation of what reality is, you see. That's why you can have witnesses that see an event and each one differs from each other in terms of what life is all about. Everyone in this room has a different understanding, interpretation of reality, <clears throat> you see. The second thing is, <coughs> we, have to, we have a certain belief of what, what's possible. What is possible to change? Each one of us has a different set of beliefs of that, you see. Therefore, you need to examine that because to the extent that each one of these things is contrary to tshuva, you see, to that extent will be very difficult to do tshuva. And people don't realize that. You don't do tshuva, people do not change unless they have to reorder their goal first. And then that will not be dissonant or that will not be contrary to tshuva, spirituality, ruchnias. Interesting. Most people don't even think about that. That's why as soon as Yom Kippur ends, as I said, you go back, you go back right, you go right back to being who you are. Because that who you are is what you really want to be. What the what the sinner is saying to you, what the tshuva and Yom Kippur and so on, is saying you, you can't be what you want to be, what you think you want to be. That's the whole point of the achet and so on, you see? So until you reorder your goals and your values, tshuva is a very difficult process. And that is the answer why people don't do tshuva, why the commitment to do tshuva, why the resolve is so temporary, because it's contrary really to what they want to do with their life and their values. A very important idea. You tell me how many people are going to reorder their goals. Very hard. But a real tshuva, you have to desire God. You need to desire ruchni and spirituality. You see, once you desire that, then that will become your goal. You see, like this Vila Rebbe. That's what he thought about. And that's why he was a Rebbe. In any case, <clears throat> the question is, how do we go and do that? Do that? Well, I'm going to reveal to you something. <clears throat> the last one who wants us to do tshuva is the son. The son is the great tempter. The question is, what's his strategy? The Sultan, I will tell you what his strategy is. Because if you know what his strategy is, you can find it. What is the strategy of the Sultan? How does he get everybody to make a fool of themselves and sin all day long? How does he do it? It's incredible. It's like he's a genius, you know? Because the way he does it, and I will tell you, his essential strategy Keep them in darkness. Never let them think. That's what he does. Do not let them learn Torah. Do not let them, because Torah is the truth. That's why the Gemara says that Torah is a tavern. That Torah is the only antidote to the Sultan, Yetzirah. Why? Because the Torah is the truth about what is reality. Ah, you see. But the Sultan must keep you away from the Torah. He must. You see. In other words, he must keep people in darkness. And he will do anything to make sure that you will never think about your life. 
investigate it. What would you say? What would you investigate? Who am I really? Where am I going? What have I done with my life? Where am I headed? <clears throat> you see, nobody lives forever. Like I can be gone tomorrow morning. You see, life is very, very quick. Unfortunately, as many people find out, and so on. And anything can happen. Uh, so, when was the last time a person made what's called a cheshben nefesh a reckoning of everything about himself? Uh, you see? But the son doesn't want you to think about that. Because God forbid, you're going to do tshuva. You see? Uh, so therefore, the greatest strategy is he must keep you in darkness. He must keep you ignorant. You see? And that's the only way that he can make sure you will never do tshuva. But how does he do it? How does he keep us in darkness? You see, so the ultimate goal is he must keep you ignorant. But how does he do it? So I'll tell you the, 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 how the sudden does it, what his strategy is. It's called distraction. You can't believe how we are distracted every day of the week. Every day we're distracted. Should I name some of the incredible distractions? Smartphones, right? Everybody's got a smartphone. If you look on a bus in any given day, what's everybody doing? They're talking to each other. This is the position that everybody has, right? Like this. They're all playing with their smartphones. It's like, you can't, it's like how did they live before the smartphone? I'm still trying to figure that out. But <clears throat> everybody's distracted by a smartphone, right? Then you have all kinds of other devices. You know, you have, uh, what do you call it? You have uh, games, people on their computers all day long with playing games or they're on the internet all day long. It's like, and there's a, there's a whole disease, I forgot that, uh, which is now labeled by psychologists, where guys are addicted to the internet, you know? I'm not, and, and I've got, you know, the, the internet is for information, but all the social sites, you know, Facebook and all that, there are people that live on that. <clears throat> there are people that follow other people every minute. It's astounding that they, they have no life, except they live through the other person. You know, Facebook, Twitter, all this has become, people are obsessed with this. They have no life anymore, you see. And the purpose of that is to distract you. Make sure you are involved in everything else, so God forbid you do not think about yourself in a cheshman. You see, it used to be a guy who used to drive a car, you know, and he was alone in the car. So maybe he would think about himself. You know, where am I going with my life? Where am I going? What am I doing? That means anything, right? Today, the phone's in the car. You can't get away from the phone. I'll never forget, I once went into a restaurant, and I had to use the shirotim, as they say here, you know? And all of a sudden, I hear a guy talking in the store. Right? I mean, the guy was in the store because he had to do what he had to do, right? I said, I, said, I, said, I, said, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I, a guy can't even relieve himself? In a stall, it's got to have a smart, it's got to be talking on the phone, yeah, as they say. I mean, you think about it, this is the extent that the Sutton controls a person, where a person is inundated. People who text all day, they can't stop texting. <laughs> uh, the, the average person now, when he goes to sleep, he goes to sleep with his smartphone, right? He can't leave it, yeah. Especially teenagers, uh, it's always with them. They can't leave it, you see. So what the Sultan has done is beyond belief. He has distracted everybody. Why? 
with all the devices, and they have who knows how many hundreds of devices for one purpose. Do not let them think about their life, the meaning of their life, and where they're going with it until it's too late. You see, <clears throat> that is the strategy of the sultan. That's it. I told them. One, keep them ignorant. That's the main goal. So they do not think about the meaning of life, the truth, and where they're headed. And he does that by the incredible amount of distractions. Uh, and we don't recognize that, you know. <clears throat> and uh, like I said, you know, uh, today, the devices today that are just terrible, uh, you know, the internet is a classic. You know, people just live with that and they can't get away from that. And so on, you know. In any case, that's the major strategy of the suffering. What have I said so far, really, and you think about that, you know? Uh, what I'm telling you in many ways is what tshuva really is, what the tshuva on Yom Kippur really is. I'll tell you, if you can do tshuva on Yom Kippur, if you could say this, you know, look, I've, I've done a lot of sins, obviously, we all sin. I've done a lot of sins, you know, but that's not what I'm going to do tshuva on. <clears throat> I'm going to do tshuva, how do I get close to you? That's all. I'm not going to look at the, the verse that I did, because that's really the small ideas. The real idea is my relationship with you. How do I repair it? Once you think about that, and if you do tshuva on that, you will see the incredible difference in your life. Your whole life will turn around, you see. Because now your priorities, your goals are very different. It's how to become more spiritual as opposed to how to become more physical. <clears throat> that is the essential tshuva of Yom Kippur. It's not only the chatoyim, achet shechatonim. Of course, that's important, you know. But the real thing is, where are you headed? You know, you ever see a, a ship? They make, uh, imagine a ship has to go east, and all of a sudden they find that they drifted, and they're going west. So they have to make a correction. <clears throat> that's called a major correction, you see. And then a ship also, even if it's going in the right direction, can veer off five degrees, right? So that's called a minor correction. Daily, it's minor corrections. On your Kippur, it's a major correction. You've got to reverse the direction that you're going into uh, to become more spiritual, you see, and to want that spirituality. And the truth is, the only way you really get that is you have to learn the Torah. There's no other way, because the Torah is the only safer that tells you what the emphasis is. Uh, you know, what that means learning, make a, making a seder, you know, or going to shurim, and so on. Especially, I would say, the, the learning of hashkofa is critical. Because hashkofa tells you what life is really all about, who is God, who are the Jews, Mashiach, what a Jew has to do, why mitzvahs are important, the whole concept of the history of the Jews, you see, and how it all ends. That's the only meaning of life. Uh, so therefore, learning Torah is critical, really, to achieve uh, a tshuva, certainly a major correction tshuva, where you shift the whole direction that you want to go into. And that's really what it's all about. It's not a difficult thing to understand. It is very difficult to do. Because like I say, the goals we have are usually wrong, and usually we don't, we're not even aware, it's unconscious, of what our real goals are, you know. Sometimes it takes a life-altering moment, you know, like Hurricane Irma, to wake you up, wake a person up and say, wait a minute, you know, I've invested millions of dollars in my home, 
and this little and this hurricane is gonna just wipe it out in what in ten hours. Uh, so guys said, what did I do? I spent half my life building this home in you know Florida, right? Half my life, all my money, half my life, my enormous amount of investment of time. And for what? So a hurricane can go wipe it out in ten hours? So a person wakes up and he says, It's not worth it. For what? Uh, you know what I'm saying? So then a person will say to himself, then what is the real meaning of life? How do you get happiness, really? Meaning. When a person is doing that which has meaning to them, they are happy. When a person is doing things which have no meaning, they are very unhappy. Uh, you see. And relating with God has incredible meaning. And that is really the whole purpose of a Jew's life. It's Torah and how to connect with God, you see. So, uh, I've tried to outline some of the major points of tshuva, what it is, why it's difficult, and what the Sultan's real strategy is. You see, now you can battle them, you know. And the key is don't get distracted. Don't get caught up in nonsense. Most of a person's life is caught up in utter nonsense. You can't believe how, non how nonsensical it is most of the stuff we do. It has no permanence, you know, it has no value, yet we're caught up into that. Learn, think, ask yourself, make a cheshman and nefesh, ask yourself, and it doesn't make a difference what age, where am I headed? <coughs> Why am I headed this way? Is it really the direction I want to go? Am I listening to people and I've decided to adapt their goals and their lifestyle? Is that what's happening? It's usually the case. This is the way to do tshuva. And your kip, like I say, is a great day to do the tshuva. There's no sucking. There's no prosecuting attorney, right? It's incredible, right? Therefore, every, any tshuva you do will be accepted in heaven, you know? And the greatest tshuva of all is to make that cheshman and nefesh, to reorient yourself into a true direction. And of course you'll falter, but that's every, every day there's a tshuva, right? To do tshuva on a chen. But at least you know that you're headed in the right direction. And that, in the end, is the most important thing of all. Because the worst thing that a guy can say when the Mashiach comes is, wow, did I mess up. And when he says that, he's not going to say, I messed up because of a sin I did. He's going to say, I messed up. My whole direction in life was completely wrong. And I spent a whole life doing nothing. As it says in the Volatian, should that we shouldn't labor for, for nothing, for emptiness. Right? And we were born for Bahala means vanity, emptiness, and so on. That's what we pray. We don't want to confront the fact, right, that we were born for nothing and did nothing. That's the worst thing you can, in the end of time, when you're standing in front of God, because everybody's going to stand in front of God. It has to give a reckoning, right? Okay, so they're going to tell you in the great judgment day, right? Okay, you did this sin, you did this sin, maybe you didn't enough Torah, but at least I was involved in finding God. Not God is going to say to you, you know, you spent almost all half your life in Las Vegas or Atlantic City, you know what I'm saying, and try to make millions of dollars. What's the point of all this? It meant nothing. That's the greatest aggravation you will have, I guarantee you, when that is thrown in your face. 
that he would basically live an empty life, you see. And it was meaningless, and it went nowhere. You don't want to have that aggravation. That's like I say, the greatest pain of war. You'd rather hear, okay, you made a couple of mistakes, but at least you're headed in the right direction. So then, that's a whole different story, you see. And that's a very important thing to remember. You do not want to face the aggravation that you will face when they tell you basically your life was empty. You don't want to have that. So, think about it. We're coming up to the Kippur, which is an incredible opportunity to tshuva. There's no sudden, right? But remember, the critical idea is change the way you look at life, give it meaning, and the only real meaning of life for a Jew certainly is what? Is ruchnis, is spirituality. Good luck. <laughs>